You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Every Nation GTA, it is a privilege to be a part of your worship service today. Hopefully, in the near future, I can be there in person with you. Uh, Pastor Bert and Sheila, thank you for this opportunity. And I want you to know Nashville misses you. Uh, come visit more often. Today, I want to look at a text that talks about and explores one of the most important theological ideas, words, concepts in the whole Bible. Um, And I want to introduce that and attempt to do what the Apostle Paul often does and what Jesus constantly did, which is trying to make complex theological ideas easy for humans to understand. Here's a story. It was over 25 years ago, and my sons were approximately seven, five, and and three. And our goal with our children that age was to uh, have our dinner times as with as little chaos as possible. Um, Now, everybody has a different level of chaos with children that age, but our Pretty much our rule was that you had to sit at your seat until you were dismissed. Uh, when you finished your food, you asked for permission to leave and, and, and you could go on. That was the rule. We didn't have a lot of rules. That was the rule. And I'll never forget the moment my three-year-old son uh, got up from his chair and very slowly starts moving toward the kitchen. And I said, Jonathan, um, you have not been dismissed. You need to sit down. And he held up his cup, his sippy cup, and he said, but I'm really thirsty. And he kept inching toward the kitchen. And I said, Jonathan, uh, you have not been dismissed. You need to sit down. He said, but I'm really, really thirsty and kept moving toward the kitchen. And I could see this wasn't working. So I said, Jonathan, who is the boss? He stopped, looked at me, and he said, me and you, Dad. And um, we had a fundamental disagreement over this. Uh, eventually we got it resolved. But I think when we, when we think that a three-year-old and his dad are sort of the same, uh, we're missing the point. And, and as we look at our text today, we see the difference of who Jesus is and who we, who we are and the implications of those differences. Let's look at Romans chapter 10, and what what we're going to look at today is Romans 10 verses 1 through 13, but I'm only going to read four of these verses, and you'll see why. Verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then in verse 13, the end of this section, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, you can see the concept here is salvation. 
the idea of being saved. In the beginning of this section of Scripture, Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer is that they, he's talking about the Jewish people. This is a letter to the Romans. The Romans were primarily Gentile, non-Jewish. They were, they had a completely different culture, ethnicity, language, food, uh, theological view. Everything was different than the Jews. There were a few Jews left in the church at Rome at this point, but not many. Uh, they had been exiled. They had been, they had been persecuted by, uh, by the emperor and were left with Gentiles primarily. And so he's saying that in, in this first mention of saved, he says they may be saved. He's praying for Jewish people that perhaps the possibility of them being saved. And I, and I want to stop on this point right here in this prayer for salvation. My heart's desire, my longing, my prayer is that they, my people, the people like me is what Paul's saying, may be saved. It's not a definite thing, but it's a possibility in prayer. It doesn't matter who you're praying for. It doesn't matter how far they seem from God. It doesn't matter how entrenched. It doesn't matter how many generations they haven't known or served God. There is always the possibility that they may be saved when we put our heart into this kind of prayer. Now, we go to the next one. In verse 9, it says that they, that they will be saved. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth, and you will. Now, this is not a possibility. This is a definite happening in the future. It's not right now. Will be. Not might be, not could be, not should be, or shall be. Will be. They will be. This is this definite future. The next one's interesting. Verse 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth, that it says that uses this word present tense, is saved. So we've got this. This, this idea of saved right now in verse 10, but this idea of will be saved in the future in verse 9. And then, of course, verse 13 goes back to that, that they will be saved. So here's the question. Actually, three questions. What, how, who? The what of salvation. What does it even mean? The how of salvation. How does it happen? And the who. Who is the one doing the saving. Now, when we think about salvation, when we think about the idea of being saved. For us today in the Western world, it's pretty spiritual. It's eternal. We think in terms of eternity after we die. Uh, we also think individual. It's, it's me and it's you and it's maybe this other, but we think individually and we think about heaven. Now, to understand Scripture, we don't lay over what we think and what we believe. We have to go back. What was Paul meaning? And the people who heard or read Paul's letter being read, what did it mean to them? And, and, and what was their concept? It really wasn't even close to what ours is today. What they thought was not spiritual, but primarily they would think physical or even political. Um, the idea of the word saved and salvation in this context typically meant saved from an enemy. And so it was a, we think spiritual, they would have thought maybe even political. We think eternal, they would have thought temporal. Right here, right now. Saved now. What is What does this mean for me now? We think individual, they would have had more of a tribal idea 
of my people and my family and the larger extended family. And we think about heaven, they certainly would have first thought about earth right here, right now. So we think one way, they thought another way, but the biblical concept really is sort of a merger of the two. When the Bible speaks of salvation, it is both spiritual and physical. It is both eternal and temporal. It's then and it's now. It's both individual, but there's also a tribal aspect to it. You and your household will be saved, Scripture says repeatedly. It's, yes, it's heaven, although that word is only mentioned twice in the whole book of Romans, and neither time was it referring to what we think of as heaven. That's in other places, but it's heaven and it's earth. And so their view of the biblical view of salvation is much more holistic than how the Western evangelical, the Western uh, Christian or the Catholic or the, the Western religious mind typically thinks it's much more holistic in, in scriptures. I think so often we use the word saved or salvation and it's not in its fullest. And, and when I think about the misuse of a word or misunderstanding of a word, I think about that classic movie, Prince's Bride. Uh, if you, if you haven't seen it, you should, uh, but it'll help you understand this. Uh, there was that, constant repeating of the word inconceivable. Uh, the Italian philosopher Vizzini kept on saying, no matter what happened, he would say inconceivable. Then there's that moment when the dread pirate Roberts is climbing the mountain, the rope is cut, he doesn't fall to his death, and there Vizzini says it again, inconceivable. And then our hero of the movie, Inigo Montoya, says, you keep saying that word. I do not think that word means what you think that word means. I think that a lot about salvation. You keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And so often we have shrunk salvation beyond its biblical idea, which is much more holistic. We shrink it down to something only in eternity. It is certainly that, but so much more. Now, we talked about the what of salvation. What about the how? In verse 2, um, it tells us, that these people that Paul is praying for their salvation, they had a zeal, but it wasn't rooted in truth. And so, so the how of salvation, it's not just zeal. There are so many people who seem to have this zeal for God or spirituality and this sincerity, but there's no truth involved. They have their truth and my truth and your truth. And, and, and of course, there's none of that is valid in Scripture. There's God's truth, but they have this zeal but if it's not in truth, it's not leading towards salvation. So what is the how? How does salvation happen? It's not just zeal alone, but it's zeal rooted in truth that we see in verse 2. Secondly, verse 5 and 6, it speaks about, even, even in verse 3 and 4, it speaks about this idea of establishing our own righteousness, of trying to do things that are good and not do bad things so that we have a righteousness we can present to God one day and somehow that brings salvation. Uh, the word for that is self-righteousness. But what we're told where, where Paul writes and he explains in verse 5 and 6 that there's a, there's a righteousness that's based on the law. Verse 5 and then in verse 6 he says, but there's another righteousness that's based in faith. And so we either base our right standing, our righteousness with God on the law on how we live and on how good we think we are, usually compared to others. Usually we compare to the worst, and then we really feel good about ourselves. Or there's a righteousness that's based in faith and putting our confidence not in what we do for Christ, but what He does for us. In fact, what He did for us 
on the cross. And so the how is not zeal divorced from truth, but zeal rooted in truth. Secondly, it's not a righteousness based on the law, which is self-righteousness, but it's a righteousness based in faith, which is the righteousness of Christ that he gives to us according to faith. And then finally, in verse 10, it speaks about the power of words, but also belief in the heart. And so salvation, the how of salvation, it's not words alone, but it's words and heart. Christianity is a confessional faith. It has been from the very beginning until now. Some traditions take a lot, they're much more rooted in the confessing of the word and the confessional faith, but nevertheless, it has always been a confessional faith. And one of the primary first summary statements of Christianity is this phrase we're going to look at in the next verse, Jesus is Lord. It was a confession. But we also see in scriptures that so often we're told that people confess with their mouth, but they don't believe in their heart. They say one thing with their words, but their lifestyle says something exactly the opposite. So the how of this, it's not just zeal, but zeal and truth. It's not self-righteousness, but it's a righteousness by faith. And it's not just the words we say. It's the words we confess and with the heart we believe. It's the, it's the words and the heart. Now, I want to bring this now to focus on the who of salvation. And the, the, the word we have here in verse 9, it says, you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. When we think about that idea of Jesus is Lord, this was a culture, the, the, the culture he's writing to in Rome, the common phrase that they would even greet one another with was Caesar is Lord. Similar to maybe in England, maybe they would say, God save the queen. Or back uh, back in Nazi Germany, they would click their heels together and raise their hand and say, Hell Hitler. The Romans would say, Caesar is Lord. The statement that Paul is saying that salvation is rooted in, the belief, the statement, Jesus is Lord. If you think about right now the most radically anti-politically correct thing you can possibly say or tweet or write or put on a bumper sticker. Uh, you know, you, when, when people say or do something, and it, the, the target changes all the time because things that could be said a few years ago now will get you canceled. Things that maybe could have been uttered even a year ago, now they're, 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 they're out, they're out of bounds. When you think about things today that are not politically correct, the result is people get persecuted, they get canceled, they get their social media shut down. Oh, I don't know how they survived that. I don't know how you live without that. Um, they, they get all these things, but every bit of that is so minor compared to what these people faced. To say Jesus is Lord was so far beyond being canceled or shunned or mocked, or maybe you don't get a raise, or maybe you get fired from your job. This could mean you die. This could mean you end up in prison and waiting to be killed with one of the most brutal, violent deaths you could imagine. This is a radical statement, Jesus is Lord. It's first of all a political statement in that context. There were a lot of politics involved in that when you defied and you put your allegiance in Jesus as Lord rather than Caesar as Lord. That was a packed statement. 
Secondly, there's a deep theological understanding of this. In the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of that, more than 6,000 times this word, the Greek word for this, this that we see Lord, more than 6,000 times it's used. And now it's the same word that we're seeing here in the New Testament. So when it says Jesus is Lord, that same Lord is used of God in the Old Testament, the God that Moses is relating to and Abraham, and, and you just go through the Old Testament. So there's a deep theological meaning of who Jesus is, the divinity of Christ, uh, that, that second person of the Trinity. This, this not just a good teacher, not just a, a miracle worker tapping into the power of God, but God himself walking in human flesh. Jesus is Lord, has deep theological ramifications. But more than being, or not more, but along with being this radical cultural political statement, and trust me, saying Jesus is Lord is increasingly becoming a radical cultural and political statement today. The political side, there's a theological side, but for salvation to result from this, with all the deep meaning of salvation, it has to become a personal statement. It's not enough that we say something and there are social and political ramifications of saying Jesus is Lord, or we understand the theological nuances of, of saying Jesus is Lord. But it really has to become a step beyond that, which is personal. We confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead. It says then we will be saved. There's a certainty of our salvation. This text starts off with the possibility. I'm praying that they may be saved. But when that confession, Jesus is Lord, that belief that Jesus is alive, believing the resurrection is real, it says they will be saved. And then it says they there's this present tense, saved now and will be in the future. I was reading... Um, a summary, I think a good summary of this in this book, Almost Christian. Um, what the faith of our teenagers is telling the American church, and I don't know, we're, I'm speaking to a Canadian church right now, but I think it's maybe saying the same thing by, this is a, a Princeton theology, theology professor, um, Dr. Dean. And I want to, I want to read a paragraph of that because I think it summarizes this idea of Jesus as Lord and what happens when we miss it. And we don't understand what it means. Here's what, here's what Dr. Dean says of this. Ask the question, what if the blasé religiosity of most American teenagers is not the result of poor communication, but actually the result of excellent communication of a watered-down gospel so devoid of God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ, so immune to the sending love of the Holy Spirit that it might not be Christianity at all. What if the church models a way of life that asks not a passionate surrender, but ho-hum assent? What if we're preaching a moral affirmation a feel-better faith and a hands-off God instead of the decisively involved, impossibly loving, radically sending God of Abraham and Mary who desires us enough to enter creation in Jesus Christ and whose spirit is active in the church and in the world today. If this is the case, 
If theological malpractice explains teenagers' half-hearted religious identities, then perhaps most young people practice moralistic therapeutic deism not because they reject Christianity, but because this is the only Christianity they know. Now, that was a mouthful, but I think she's right. I think this professor is correct that maybe we haven't really taught the Lordship of Christ. Maybe we've ignored what it really means to say Jesus is Lord. Salvation in Paul's writing here is hinged on the fact that Jesus is Lord and the fact that Jesus is alive. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead. That means he's alive. It really matters if someone's alive or dead. So what are the implications of saying Jesus is Lord? And what are the implications of believing that Jesus is alive, that the resurrection is real? Well, let me go back to the story I started with. When my three-year-old son was disobeying me, and I said, who's the boss? He said, me and you, Dad. The implication of lordship is this. If God ever sees us going in a direction we shouldn't go, doing the opposite of what he said to do, moving ahead of what he wants, getting out of his will, disobeying his word and his will, whatever. If God ever looks at you and says, who's the boss? The answer is not me and you, God. The answer is yes, sir. The answer is here I am, send me. The answer is yes, Lord. The answer is not my will, but your will be done. What are the implications of the Lordship of Christ? Everything. Every minute of every day of every year of our lives. Every relationship and every decision. As we close the sermon today, we confess Jesus is Lord. And we believe that God raised Him from the dead. And that means He's alive. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.